Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, where hunters new and old come to learn and find inspiration from stories of hunts gone by. Everyone is welcome to enjoy the outdoor way of life, and there is no better time to start than right now. So let's head into the great outdoors with your host, Dylan Ray. All right, guys, welcome to Bear Archery's Hunting 101 podcast, as always, presented by our friends over at Scentlock. Um, I am a, a big fan of Alone. I've had Jordan Jonas on the show, and now I have another special guest, Mr. Clay Hayes, uh, who was this past season winner of Alone. Clay, how are you, man? Doing great. How are you today? You know, I'd be a lot better if it wasn't so stinking hot in January. I'm trying to figure out why it's 65 degrees in, in January. Where are you at? You must be in the Keys. I'm in Kansas, <clears throat> <laughs> and it should not be 65 degrees. I know that. It, it's been a strange year. It, it's been crazy, man. We were, we were trying to get ready for late season whitetails, you know, January 20th, 24th, right there before Christmas, and we had 70-degree days. And we're like, how in the crap do you hunt late season whitetails when it's 70 degrees? Yeah, we uh, we had kind of a similar thing up in Idaho. I, I went back up there for our late season bow hunt in December, and uh, I mean, it was there was absolutely no snow at all. And this is a that hunt is a very it's a very weather dependent. So without snow, you don't have deer. So for the first ten days or so we were there, it was it was pretty scarce. Uh, we finally got some snow, and the deer moved in. But it was but uh, for the last two three days or so. Yeah, it's been crazy, man. And and I actually talked a few episodes back and uh you know, we talked about how the whitetail rut was so I don't know, prolonged but never like full in effect because they kept having these weird weather switches and like, you know, it'd be 10 degrees one day and then back up to 70 for a week and it would just kind of push them in but then pull them back out and uh you know, a lot of just pushing and tending does but never like really full on rutting and just a, a crazy year all around, man. Yeah, the uh, I mean, even back in the summer, like in uh, throughout the West, especially up in uh, our part of the country in Idaho, it was like the dry. I think it was the I talked to one of my neighbors who lived there for eighty four years. I think he said it's the driest summer he had ever seen in his life. He'd been there his whole life, and then now this winter, <clears throat> after we got down here, I guess just uh, a couple weeks ago, they got like 18 inches of snow, which is the most snow. I've never seen that much. I've been there for 10 years. Yeah. That's kind of weird, the, that big a dump followed by, you know, right on the heels of the driest summer on record. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, well, before we jump in, uh, let me give a quick kind of um, introduction to this. So I began shooting a traditional bow about 18 months ago, 
And when you begin looking into traditional shooting tips and, and how to shoot a bow, uh, the name Clay Hayes pops up pretty much at the top of the list. Uh, last year, well, really about, no, not this time. The summer of last year, uh, we did a traditional 101 series um, where we walked through all the ins and outs of shooting a recurve. Um, and we actually did a really fun episode with Clay, uh, Aaron Snyder, um, Jim Willems, and Fred Eichler. Um, to just kind of tell fun hunting stories and, and how they all got into shooting a recurve. Um, and so into my journey into shooting a recurve, um, spent a lot of time uh, taking on information from Clay. Um, actually, Clay, last year uh, in opening season, opening day in Missouri, shot my first whitetail with a recurve, um, still in full velvet, so that was really cool. Um but but so I started digesting all of this information, um, and at the same time I was kind of falling in love with the show alone. Then I catch wind, and it was funny. I don't know if you remember this, Clay. You probably don't. But um, when we did that episode with those four guys, you said I didn't get to hunt much because of another project I was working on, and I was like, well, that's weird. Um, why would uh, why would Clay not be hunting? Because uh, pretty much any project he would be doing would be hunting, and. Uh, Aaron Schneider said, I knew, I, oh, I know, I know. And, uh, and so I was like, what in the world is this? And then, of course, Alone announced the, the season, uh, the season uh, contestants, and I'm like, okay, now it makes sense. And then as the show began, I was like, well, if Clay didn't get to hunt much, he must have went pretty stinking far in the show, or he would have went back home and started hunting. Um, so that's kind of how all this came about. Um, walk us through... Um, kind of, well, let's, let's just start at your packing list. Like, what do you pack, um, to go on alone? What did you pack to go on alone? I should say. I, I always forget something. So you get 10 basic items, like your survival items, right? Um, let's see if I can remember this. I had, I took my bow and arrow, of course, I took a Dutch oven, uh, t- two quart, uh, anodized aluminum Dutch. I took a big fold out silky saw, like the Katana boy. I think it's the almost the biggest fold-out saw they make. That thing's awesome. Uh, took fishing line and hooks, um, sleeping bag, um, snare wire. Uh, heck, I'm leaving a couple of them off. Uh, Leatherman, an axe, and what else? I can't remember the... I'll probably think of it before too long, but that was that was the gist of my uh, my ten items. And then, of course, you've got your they they allow you ample clothing. And so I had two pair of boots. I had a pair of late winter pack boots, and I had a pair of light hikers. Um, you know, they give you. Oh, I had a ferro rod. That's right. Liz, come over here and reminded me. <laughs> she remembers what I took. Um, <clears throat> But you get your clothing, your all your base layers, and you know your your ja- couple of different jackets, pullover, different things like that. So I had had lots of clothes with me. Now, I've always wanted to ask contestants this, and I should have asked Jordan on if you could have picked any item, um, restricted or not. Like if you could add any one additional item, a GPS, a gun, whatever it might be. What's that one item that you would add to that list? <clears throat> um. I'd have taken a beef cow with me. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what. Um, I don't know how to say this without making people mad. But it's going to make people mad. 
Um, so I don't care. It came down to you and Biko. My the reason I was so upset of this was Biko really didn't do well on the show. Um, never killed any animals, never caught any fish, didn't do well. He was just really overweight. So he had a lot of weight to lose. Um, and I think if I could pick one prime example to drive this point home, it would be him. Because I think every 10 pounds overweight you are should count as an item. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a viable survival strategy, right? I mean, I tried to gain weight. I, I, I did gain some. I was able to gain about 20 pounds before I went on, which has uh, put me at 180 pounds, which is way, way heavier than I've ever been before. Um, and so I think everybody kind of tries it. It's just easier for some people to put that stuff on than others. And, and for some yeah. people it comes off really quick and that's, right. um, I'm one of those people, I think. <clears throat> so my normal body weight is a hundred, about 160 pounds. And I went in at 180 and I, I, that extra 20 pounds I lost in 20 days. Wow. Um, now be, I, I've thought about that a lot and I'm like, Obviously, you can't take a Garmin, or you can't take an inReach, or you can't take, you know, a, a gun. You can't take, you know, all these certain things. And I've thought, but if nothing was off limits, like what's the one additional item that would make the biggest amount of change? Um, and obviously, you you found success hunting with a recurve, and you hunt with a recurve anyway. So I don't think it would have been a gun for you. Um, but I've thought about that maybe more than I even should. Um, and I think for me, it would probably come down to a GPS because you would be more, you would be more, um, open to going further, staying out longer or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe even like a flashlight, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, uh, no, that's been, that's been on my mind and don't really know why, but, um, one thing I want to ask you about, and I don't know, you know, how the show lays it out. I don't know if it really was right when you got there. Uh, but you saw the mountain lion like day one. Um, what did that give mm -hmm. you? What, what kind of indications did that give you about where you were at? Well, uh, I've, you know, I've been in the Western mountains for, I guess first I moved out there in 2007 and I've been all over the Idaho backcountry, and I've, I've seen a few lions over dogs, but I'd never seen one like that. You know, I'd never seen one just out kind of doing their thing, especially sneaking up on you and that cat was less than 20 yards away I mean he was very close to me and so right off the bat I mean you know you're in a wild place you know when something like that happens after spending so much time in the mountains but I also figured well if there's a lion hanging around here there's I mean he's not eating rats and there's got to be some deer around here somewhere um and there were you know there were a few deer that but they're there were not many. Um, I was there for 74 days and saw two, two deer the whole time I was there, and I was all over that place. So, you know, that makes it that, – that would have been a tough hunt with a rifle. It makes it pretty tough with a stick bow. Yeah, no kidding. Um, how quickly how, – how, how soon did you see that lion? I mean, how long were you there before you saw the lion? I think I actually they, – they, <clears throat> they edited it to look like it was day one, but I think that – I think it was like day three. It was really early, but it wasn't. It wasn't right off the bat. Yeah, they edited it to make it look like you took your backpack off and boom, you saw it. You know, um, which is why, you know, the, the, yeah. that, that that's what kind of becomes difficult about understanding like the timeline of the show because they have to edit it, you know, to make it flow and keep it interesting. And 
Um, so I, I, I was curious to ask you that. Um, what was the what was the hardest thing, other than like family separation, but like when it comes down to like survivalist and hunting, what was the the hardest thing you you encountered there? Inactivity. Um, so, and it, it you, this is another. You, you said you'd brought up the topic of of editing and and you know how they they lay things out. Um, that can make it. And then you also said, well, Biko didn't do anything. Well, it's hard to, from watching the show, it's hard to really understand what someone's doing. Right. Because, um, uh, you know, like I talked to Rose after the show and, um, you know, she was complaining because they didn't show any of the fishing lures that she made. You know, it made, it, they made her look like she really didn't do anything. And uh, apparently she was busy making different fishing lures, which none of that stuff made the show. Um I don't forgot what your original question was. What was <laughs> the hardest thing, like as far as the hunting, the survivaling, like the survivalist? What What was the hardest thing that you encountered? Oh yeah, that's right. So, so, so when they um, when they put my edit together, uh, they didn't show the uh, the the really the toughest thing that that I had to overcome, and that was, um, I guess about day 50 or so i so we had a big snow i guess towards the i don't know end of october early november and i went out looking for that lion again you know i went out first thing in the morning i was going to try to cut that cat's track we had we probably had 14 inches of snow wet heavy snow on the ground i went out and i hiked all the all around my place, I probably put in six miles, and if you've ever walked that far in knee deep, wet, heavy snow, uh, you'll know how physically exhausting that was. And you think about doing that, you know, after fifty some days of eating very, very little, probably eating less than five hundred calories a day, um, being very physically depleted, and so. When I got back from that hunt, that that day out in the field, I was I was wet and just, I mean, bone exhausted, you know, right down to the bone. And at the at the end of that day, I, I came to the realization that I wasn't going to be able to do, I wasn't going to be able to be as active as I wanted to be because I could look at my food stores and I could see, you know, that that deer that I'd killed, I could have ate that whole thing in, you know, probably 15 days if I ate as much as I wanted to. I mean, I could have eaten that deer very, very quickly. And so when I, when I turned that whole thing into jerky, I rationed it out so that that deer would last me for 90 days. Um, And so I was eating, I don't know, probably three ounces of dried deer meat a day, plus, you know, some mushrooms and, um, and, cranberries and things like that, that I'd found not very much. Um, and so I knew that if I kept up that kind of activity level, that my body condition was going to continue to deteriorate. And they had already warned me about my weight. Um, and they will pull you if you, you know, if they come out and do a med check and you've lost too much weight, they'll, they'll pull you off the show and send you home. And so I didn't want that to happen. And so after that time, I, I really backed off on my activity level. And there was a couple of days when I took it 
like the opposite extreme. And I spent, I remember one day, there was a one day that I spent 18 hours in my sleeping bag and tr- just tried to be as, as inactive as I could just to try to save calories to, to, you know, keep my body condition up. And I'm a, that's just not me. You know, I'm, I'm a very active person. And so for me to, to not be able to do the things that I wanted to do, that kind of led me into a funk. Like, uh, I mean, I got downright depressed um, because I, I felt like I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And so <clears throat> I guess there for about 10 days, I was, I was depressed. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was complaining, you know, because I didn't have enough to eat or whatever, you know, I was just feeling sorry for myself. And the whole time the camera's rolling. So they could have used any of that stuff that they wanted to. But what eventually brought me out of that or or got me on the other side of that was I was the morning. So one evening we had a big storm come through and it was one of those times when which happened rarely out there, but it did happen probably two or three times when you had a storm come through and it was like two, two solid days when, you, when I didn't leave my shelter. I mean, it was blowing and, and kind of the sleety uh, rain stuff, probably blowing 40 miles an hour. And so I spent two whole days in my shelter. And then that evening was complaining. And the next morning I got up, I woke up and I thought, you know what, what, if they use this stuff, my two boys, Koi and Finn, they're going to watch this and they're going to see me complaining and whining. And the thought of them seeing that, seeing me behave that way, snapped me out of it. And from that moment on, I changed my perspective and all of my suffering ended. I I chose not to see the days that I had remaining there as something that I had to suffer through, but as opportunities to show them how to overcome adversity and how to, how to get through those things. And so it was just that simple change in perspective. I mean, that changed everything for me. That's awesome, man. That That's awesome testimony, man. Just about, you know, remembering and, and a perspective change. Um, I've got, and I don't want to skip, skip ahead. Never mind. I won't ask it because it is skipping ahead. Um, it seems as though, and you know, I'm not I'm not taking anything away from anybody else that's been on a loan, but everybody else that's been on a loan has been survivalists. Um, and as a survivalist, you learn some hunting skills. But you're just a downright hunter who went on a loan. Um, do you think being a successful uh, hunting focused guy helps you on a loan more than more than some other people who? You know, there's people who don't take a bow, and I'm like, well, what are you going to do, you know? Um, do you think having that hunting mindset helps you in the long run? Well, it can, but not necessarily. And and that all depends on your location and your opportunity. I mean, I could very well have just not had the opportunity that I had. I, I you know, I... I had that opportunity at the deer and because of my background in traditional bow hunting, I was able to capitalize on it. But I mean, like I said, I was there for two and a half months and saw two deer. I mean, that's a incredibly low odds 
situation. I mean, even just to find that deer. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. If I had not, if I hadn't made my living with a, a stick bow, you know, I, there, it, there's a very, very good chance I wouldn't have made that shot. And, you know. How far was the shot? So, but, but it, it was 25 yards. 25. How far did the deer go? Uh, he went probably 60-ish yards. Yeah, I mean, that's no... I mean, you look at the situation, and, and some guys, you know, I don't think people who aren't hunters really understand exactly what you did or what Jordan Jonas did or what Roland did with the muskox. I mean, you know, we as as... as Midwest hunters, I mean, we, we go on our properties all year long. I mean, we run cameras all year long. We hang stands. We put blinds out. Um, even Western guys, I mean, they're scouting on Onyx. You know, they might have boots on the ground one time before they before they go out. And, you know, they know the land better. They can look at topo maps, and they can pull up these things and, and rut reports and all this other stuff that we look at. Um, but you were literally dropped at a place with no – no hunting resources other than a, a bow and an arrow and told to go out and hunt. Um, so if, and I'm not saying somebody is just going to find themselves in that situation, but what did that teach you about attacking a new piece of ground on how to hunt? Well, I lived there. I mean, from the day that I got dropped off. Um, and so we, when, you know, when you, when you spend so much time in a, in one place like that, uh, and it's a couple square miles, I'm not sure how big my area was. Um, but you get to know it pretty intimately and you get to know who's coming and who's going. And I was on, I was, I was over that ground almost every single day. And so when I saw fresh deer sign, uh, you know, I just went back to my experience, you know, all the years that I've spent bow hunting and, and kind of did what I would normally have done. And they, 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 I think they did a pretty good job of showing that. Like when I first, when I found that first fresh deer sign, um, there was my, my area was a huge expanse of high elevation lodgepole timber, which is a very low productivity type of environment. I mean, it's basically like, um, you know, if you put it in a Midwestern context, it'd be like a plowed field, you know, there's just not, it doesn't hold animals. They might traverse it. Uh, they might bed out there every now and then, but they're not, there's no food out there. Um, but there was these little pockets of like, almost like a depressional wetland. And around those areas, there was willows and there was different, there was like roses and different sedges and things like that. And that, that's the type of area that those deer were keying on, but they were tiny, you know, they were only maybe two acres, you know, at the biggest, uh, half an acre up to two acres. And so found fresh deer sign in this area. And it's like, well, I mean, if the deer are in here, I can't, I, I thought about building a tree stand up in one of those trees, but it's like, well, you go up there cutting trees down with a, with a saw and trying to fabricate something like that. You're going to run anything out that's in there. Um, and when I found that fresh deer sign, I can't remember. It was the, the wind wasn't right or something wasn't right. So I just backed out. I didn't want to run the deer out. And the, Went back later on and, and cut fresh deer sign again and, and just kind of started still hunting through those likely areas and finally, you know, caught up with that deer. I'd actually bumped um, probably an hour before I shot that little buck. I'd bumped a doe, which wasn't legal. 
I, I, you know, I couldn't legally shoot that deer. So really, I killed the only legal deer that I saw the whole time that I was there. Yeah, you couldn't shoot. Could you shoot lions? Yeah. Yeah, so we had to... It, um, we 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 had to follow the local game regs, and that's fishing and everything. And so there was actually a a two trout daily limit, uh, only one of which could be a bull trout, which made it very very frustrating because when the fish are biting, you want to keep catching. Right. So, and you couldn't shoot bears though. Am I correct? No, and that was. Uh, I mean, I. I didn't expect to be able to kill a grizzly bear. I mean, I could have on multiple occasions. Um, but there, I saw one black bear track cross my, my area, and it would have been really nice to be able to put out a bait pile and, and try to get that. I, I don't know. I'm not sure how I would have approached that because I would have brought in a bunch of grizzlies. Um, yeah. But I got to try to figure something out. So you but could it, kill black It would have been nice bears. to be able to hunt black bear, but no, no. They wouldn't allow us to kill black bear either. Wow. Um, well, that's what I was thinking. Like, as I was watching this show, I remember one of the, you know, pop-ups or one of the commentators saying, like, you know, black bears are, are not in season or whatever. Um, and I'm thinking, well, that sucks because you've given, like, that's the that's the, the richest game in the area and, and they're not allowed to kill them. Um, now, not only is, is it the richest game in the area, but it's a game that's going to keep other game out. Like, if you've got a lot of bears, you're not going to have a lot of deer in your area. Um, and so I was like, well, that just kind of flat out makes things difficult. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the the people that make uh, decide on the location and, and all that stuff, you know, they don't have a background in this. So they they just looking for, you know, scenery, landscapes, uh, and things that they think will make for good viewing. Yeah. They don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, from my own perspective, it'd be more, it'd be more interesting to see people really thriving, you know, being right. able to be in a landscape that, that had a lot to offer, but, and they, they like the Northwest territories seems, you know, and I wasn't there firsthand, but it seems to be a much more, um, there seems to be a lot more resources there. Yeah. Um, what was the scariest thing you encountered? Um, you got kind of you know, mock charged, didn't you? you yeah, uh, and and that's what that's what I was about to say. Like people expect to, me to say, "Oh, well, you know, when the grizzly charged, that was the scariest." You know, that was what, but it really wasn't. And I don't, um, I wouldn't have expected that. Uh, I think they may have used something like that in the in the in the episode, but when that bear. That, when that bear came to me, um, I was at, so let me back up and just tell you how I got into that situation. So I was going, we'd had a fresh snow. There was probably a foot of snow on the ground, fresh powder. Just got it the night before. Everything was cut. The trees were covered in snow. The boughs were drooping. Um, beautiful, like Christmas card, you know, uh, postcard landscape. Well, I was going to go fishing that day. And uh, so I grabbed a small little JVC camera and grabbed my fishing rod, went down to the beach. And it was, sun was up. It was probably, I don't know, 10 o'clock, something like that. Went down to the beach. And normally I would, there was a little footbridge across a creek where I would go uh, down to the south to go fishing. Well, instead of 
crossing that footbridge, I just walked out to the beach just to to take a look towards the north and just see if I could see anything along that beach because I'd seen I'd seen moose walking up there before and I'd seen a few deer tracks on that um, and I had seen a bear up there and so when I walked up there and looked up uh, up the shoreline to the north as as far as I could see just before it goes around the bend you can't see the shoreline anymore I saw a bear and he was coming my way and so. Um, I wanted to get, like, I knew that he was going to walk that shoreline right past my, my shelter. I wanted to get some good footage of him, but I didn't have my good camera. I had just had the smaller one. Um, I got a little lazy on filming that day. And so I went back up towards my shelter, grabbed, grabbed the, the bigger, better camera and turned the mic on and realized the mic batteries were dead. So I was fumbling around with that, trying to change out the mic batteries and all that stuff and during that time when I was up there like something like a helicopter had flown over the lake which was rare um we didn't hear much air traffic or anything like that up there and so when I went back down to the beach the bear wasn't on the beach anymore and so I figured well maybe that helicopter had pushed him back up into the timber and so I went back up uh, back up past my shelter. Now, my plan was to go maybe get a hundred yards inside the timber line and just walk up towards the north, towards where that bear was coming from. Well, I got up there about 50 yards or so, and I, I thought, well, you know, if the bear goes back down onto the beach and I'm in the timber, I'm never going to see him. So we're going to pass each other. So I went back down to the beach and walked maybe a hundred yards up the beach. And then I was going to duck into the timber and just set up because I had a good wind <clears throat> wind was blowing from the from him to me and uh so when I when I ducked into the timber I made it in there about 20 yards and I crossed a fresh grizzly track I'm sitting here think you know looking at this fresh track trying to figure out why I'm looking at a fresh grizzly track when this bear should be a quarter mile up the beach and over in out of the corner of my eye I see movement and I look over there and this bear is on a full-on run like directly at me and so i the i had my bow and i had the camera and i i put the camera the, i hit record put the camera in my left hand ran up there was a big fir tree in between me and him i ran up to that fir tree set the camera down threw my bow down and pulled out my bear spray and that bear come up and stopped oh i don't know 20 feet on the other side of that tree. God. And uh, I, could, I couldn't really tell what he was doing because that tree was blocking my view. And so I, you know, he, he, st he stopped and was standing there. I looked around the tree and I saw him like a, make a sudden movement. I didn't, I didn't know what he was doing. I thought he might have been coming around. He moved to my left. So I thought he might have been coming around that tree towards me. So I just took my bear spray and sprayed to the left-hand side of that tree. And, you know, it turns out he wasn't coming around the tree. He was just wheeling around to, to take off. He had come in and stopped at, you know, whatever it was, 20, 25 feet, um, and then took off. And that what had happened was I was walking down the beach, you know, while I was up there fiddling with the batteries and all that stuff, he, he never stopped. He was coming. And I just, you know, I got 
mixed up on how much time it'd take him to get to the beach and how much time I was spending fiddling with the camera. We just passed each other. I was on the beach and he was in the timber. Well, when I got up into the timber, I don't know if he saw me or if he heard something. And he, when he was coming to me, um, he didn't look. The only reason I can say that I, that it wasn't scary is, is his body language. Like he didn't look aggressive. He, he looked to me like a, like an English setter going in to flush a pheasant, you know, or a, a, a flushing dog going in to flush right. a pheasant. His, his head was up, his ears were up and forward. You know, he was just curious. Like he, he wanted to know what I was, uh, and he was coming to find out. And so if, you know, if his head had been down and ears pinned back and like, that's a different mood on that bear. If he'd been like that, I, I probably would have been shaking in my boots. Um, but when he, when he left, you know, the bears bear left, I never got the shakes, never had that adrenaline dump, you know, like you would expect. And, and body language is the only reason that I know to explain. I mean, I, I don't know why I didn't have that, but. That's the way things played out. Man. Um, before we move on, I do got to give a quick thank you to our friends over at Three Rivers Archery. Clay is a good friend of the guys over at Three Rivers. Uh, they have long been since good supporters of Bear Archery and long since been good friends of mine. Uh, they are your one-stop shop for all things traditional archery. Not only that, they are a wealth of knowledge. So if you have any questions on recurve setups, they are the ones to call. And the best part about it is the information is free. Um, you can call them and ask all the questions you want, and you're in no obligation to buy anything, but they know the products because they use the products. Uh, Clay, how long have you worked with uh, the guys over at Three Rivers? I've been getting my my stuff from Three Rivers for decades. Um, I, I don't know how long they got. Those guys have been helping support my videos for years, though. Yeah. Uh, good good group of guys. And I get questions all the time. Like, one of the co most common questions I get is, what bow should I get? You know, they uh, for this draw length or that, or I want to do this with the bow or that. And I, my response is, well, I don't really know because I don't know. I'm not familiar with what's out there because I make all my own stuff and I shoot my own bows. But I always tell people, just call Three Rivers, let them know what, your draw length is what your budget is you know they can they answer those questions all day every day and they can help you you know it blew me away the first time i ever experienced um anything with three rivers i was just getting introduced into traditional archery and since i've i've become kind of a micro tuner on my arrows um all thanks to aaron schneider um but when i first got my first bow i was like i don't know what arrows to get I called Three Rivers, told them my draw length, told them uh, the poundage of the bow, and they said, oh, you need a 500 spine cut to 29 inches with 150 grades out front. That'll fly perfect. And I'm like, how you know all that? Like, you know, I'm like, okay, whatever. So, but that's what I ordered, and uh, and they flew stinking perfect. And I'm like, shout out to Three Rivers because they nailed it. Good deal. Yeah, they, they're, they're knowledgeable folks. Now, uh, one thing that, that caught my eye um, – I'm a huge fan of Schnee's as well, and uh, I noticed in one of the episodes, I'm like, he's wearing stinking pack boots from Schnee's. Um, and you also chose, I believe, bear tooths. I had uh, I had the Timberlines. Timberlines. My, my early season boots. Yep. And then I had their, uh, their pack boots uh, for the late season. I actually had a recommendation from Jim Akinson uh, over in Oregon 
for uh, for those pack boots. And I figured, well, if I'm going to be ordered or uh, getting pack boots from them, might as well get my early season boots as well. And I wasn't disappointed. I I, I love those boots. I wore them every single day, one or, one or the other on that show. And then, um, you know, I've been wearing those boots, uh, the the Timberlines for elk hunting this last year, and just really good, really great boots. Yeah, I get the probably the most question that I get asked is if if I can only get one pair of boots um, for everything, a do all pair of boots, what should it be? And uh, and I always say the Timberlines. Um, because they can really, you know, they're not too stiff to run around every day in, um, but they're stiff enough and, and, and good enough ankle support to, to run around in the mountains as well. Um, and so I tell everybody that if you can, if you only want one pair of boots to do everything in, uh, it would be the Timberlines used to be the Outlook Evos and, uh, and they quit making those, which I'm still bitter about, but, um, the Timberlines are a phenomenal everyday pair of boots. Now, I've got a question for you on pack boots specific. When, because I get this question a lot too, um, why would you choose a pair of pack boots? And I know why you did, but why would an everyday hunter choose a pair of pack boots over a pair of like muck boots? Um, well, they one of the big reasons I I chose the pack boots is they've got the removable liner, and one of the things about that liner, you pull that thing out. You know, if you're out, if you if you uh, break a sweat and you get some dampness in your boot, you pull that liner out, and you can dry that thing out pretty doggone easy. Whereas, uh, you know, a one piece boot like that, it's just dang near impossible to get those things uh, get those things dry in there. So that was the, that was one of the big reasons for me. I also tell people, and and this would be uh, another big reason is like muck boots. If you're doing any kind of hiking or walking long distances or or climbing anything or you don't want muck boots. Um, so I always say like if I sure if I'm walking to a duck blind and I'm going to get in a little bit of water, I'll wear my mucks. Uh, or if I'm walking to a tree stand 600 mm-hmm. yards in Kansas, I'll wear muck boots. But if you've got to walk two miles and and go over some terrain. You want the 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 pack boots because it's going to offer more ankle support. It's it's built like a a uh, more like a hiker than a muck boot is, and so if you have to put in any kind of distances or any kind of terrain, um, always go with a pack boot over a muck boot. Now, yeah, yeah, I, I agree on all the above. On the flip side, though, um, leather holds more scent. So if I'm going to a tree stand. And I can get away, like like I said, if I have to walk two miles in and, you know, some, some of the places I hunt in Oklahoma, um, you've got to go down some, some, I mean, not crazy rock faces, but I don't want to slide down them in muck boots. Um, so if I can get away with wearing muck boots to a tree stand, I normally do just because the rubber uh, is going to shed scent uh, better than leather will. Leather will hold on to the scent. So um, they both have their different places. Um but that's that's the reason why, and I was kind of excited to ask Clay that because um, in, in, in that kind of situation where you're going to have to be putting in miles and packing out a deer um, or, or, you know, walking down icy rocks to get to your fishing spot, like you don't want to be wearing a pair of slippery uh, muck boots that don't offer any support or, or you know, any kind of, of ankle support or, or arch support or anything like that. So, um, yeah. Now... Clay, how has this changed? And maybe it hasn't a ton. Um, what did you learn on this show that you'll take and, and apply to the rest of your hunting? Like, 
Um, what what from this made you a better hunter? I've been asked that before. I don't. I didn't know how to respond to it, um, and I still don't. Uh, I don't know. There was there were so many things that I drew, so many skills and and experiences that I drew on while I was out there, um, and I don't know. I don't know that being out there actually did make me a better hunter. I think it um, made me a better person in, in, in several ways. But it, uh, as far as being a better hunter, I think I had those skills and, and all of those experiences before I went out there. And that was that's what allowed me to capitalize on that opportunity when I did get that. So. And that goes back to my first thing of saying, like, you're a bow hunter that went on a survivalist show. Um you know, a lot of those guys might have learned ample amounts of, of hunting stuff because they had never, you know, spent that much time around game or spent that much time pursuing game. And, and so they learned a lot of hunting stuff. But but you were a hunter um, from the beginning. Um, so so you really refined other skills other than your hunting skills. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, you can't spend that much time in the woods without just, you know, becoming better in tune with with your surroundings Uh, i mean i got to know that place like the back of my hand i mean physically the environment uh, but then also just the the cadence of the place you know there was um it's kind of going off on a tangent but like for instance some of the animals that that hung around my place there was a pack of um gray jays and they were there from day one and they would they had this circuit that they would make and they it seems like about every five days they would come back and uh, there were some soapberry bushes. They'd come and eat those soapberries off there. But um, when I started later in the season, uh, all the soapberries were off and, and I would had some scraps, you know, like rabbit bones, things like that. I'd leave some little things out for them. And um, I don't know if they showed this in the show or not, but I had one day when I was sitting out in front of my shelter and had uh, some rabbit guts and I was basically hand feeding these birds. I mean, they were, they, they'd become accustomed to me and they were just hopping all around right at my feet. That's awesome. Um, now one question I've got for you. Um, and I don't know, I've just wondered, uh, most of the winners, uh, their spouse shows up to pick them up. Why did your wife not come to pick you up? Um, they wouldn't, they wouldn't let her. It's uh, the COVID, the, the uh, border was closed at that time. That's what I figured. Yeah, and people, it's, yeah, people, uh, we put out a video, um, I don't know, shortly after the final episode aired and it showed uh, me coming home and all that stuff and showed like where they set it up was um, I called her on the sat phone and people were jumping on her. Oh, you, how could you not go up there? And, you know, they just assumed that she just didn't want to drive up there or fly up there. It's like, well, you know, that's, she couldn't because they wouldn't let her. Right. Yeah. And, and man, we experienced that, um, the border closing. We, long story short, new world record was killed in Canada and the border was closed. So like, uh, we had a group of measures there from Pope and Young meet the guy at the border and like measured it at the border. Like <laughs> it was crazy, but to, to announce the new world record, they pretty much like measured it at the border. And I'm like, man, um, what people will do. But, um, so you missed pretty much all of last year's hunting season because you were on alone. Um, how'd this season go for you? 
Uh, it's been going good so far. We've uh, went out to, to our elk season or our elk camp because you know we li- we missed the last one, and that's something that the whole family looks forward to because we pack a pack up a big old wall tent and uh, go up there and set up a camp, and we I think we were there for five days, and I think two of those five we spent uh, spent one whole day um, cutting firewood and getting get things set up so that we'd have enough firewood because we just stay up there the whole month um well i ended up killing an elk the next day so we had a we left somebody a big old stack of firewood at our our uh our campsite somebody's like man um, why did somebody leave this killed much a, firewood killed an elk and like <laughs> yeah it was like a, it was like a half a cord of wood all stacked up nice and everything sitting there at the campsite um but I killed, ended up killing a, a big cow just still hunting, um, like the second day that I was hunting, which is, has never happened before. Usually it takes me the whole season to, to kill an elk. Um, but got that done. And then we ended up coming down to Florida much sooner than we usually do. And so, uh, I've been doing some hog hunting and deer hunting down here. I shot a little white-tailed doe with, uh, with my bow. Uh, I've killed a couple of hogs, um, had a pretty cool hunt on a, on a, an island off the coast uh where you're you're hunting under palm trees and i mean there's like little key deer out there and uh and hogs and stuff and shot a pretty good boar on that hunt and i went back out to idaho for our late season hunt and uh ended up killing a doe out there on that one um and then just I don't know, just kind of been exploring down here and uh, got a couple more things uh, on the on the docket. Going to be doing a float trip down here for long, exploring some pieces of some rivers down here that aren't easily accessible. So just trying to get away from folks and, and get in some more hunting. Now, um, when is the, uh, when's the last time, if I remember correctly, and you, you and your boys do all of your hunting with bows you make right yep Mm -hmm. dude that's just that's so incredibly fascinating to me that not only um do you take it that that one step further in their and their self bows um but you just said it you said still hunting for elk and and so you implement one of the hardest uh not hardest um um underutilized um, more difficult ways of hunting with a self bow it's like man dude does it the hardest way he can for sure um and, and you found great success in still hunting so what's what's one tip you have for people uh who want to start implementing some still hunting into their their hunting well <clears throat> it helps if you can find a place where you're not irritating other people by doing it because you will do that uh, if there's other hunters around um you know that from you know, experience hunt, uh, huh? slipping around the woods in prime time yeah when, when folks are trying to sit on their stands um so like down here in the south i mean there's there's lots of people down here lots of hunters on public land and so um most of the time like the hog hunting that i do i just wait until i either go somewhere where i'm confident there's not going to be anybody else or I just wait until after the deer seasons are closed um, before I go out there and still hunt for hogs. But with elk, I mean, there's very few people that are going to sit a stand for elk anyway. So people are out there walking around. Um, so you don't have to worry about that too much. But the biggest tip, I guess, um, would would be to just commit to it. You know, just say, okay, I'm going to take this couple days or whatever. I'm going to I'm going to give this a try. 
And then once he got that done, just let go of time, just slow down. Don't, don't have an objective in mind as far as a, I want to get from A to B. Um, just go into some likely areas and just start slipping into the wind. And you'll, you know, I could talk for three hours about still hunting techniques, but, you know, you're going to find yourself standing still more than you are moving. Right. The whole thing with still hunting is if you take two steps, you know, if you're standing in a spot and you, you look and you listen and you look and you listen and you, you look at every piece of ground that you can see from that spot. Well, if you take two steps, then you've opened up a, a whole nother world that you couldn't see from your, your previous step or your previous spot, six feet back. And so then you're going to stand there and you're going to look and you're going to listen. And so it's almost like sitting on a tree stand or sitting in a ground blind. You just, you know, you have the mobility. Right. Now I always tell people, and I've, I've not found success in it. I don't practice it, um, near enough, but I always tell people, if you think you're going slow enough, slow down more. Um, you know, you can't be going too slow. You can go too fast. Um, and in fact, most people do, but you can't go too slow. Um, I had this friend of mine and, uh, he decided that he was going to switch to a recurve and do all of his hunting this year with a recurve. And I'm like, that, that'd be fun, man. And, uh, and then he tells me in the same breath, yeah. And I've already committed to only still hunting this year here in Kansas. And I'm like, dude, you know, that's really stinking hard in Kansas. Um, and you're going to do it with a recurve. I'm like, good luck, man. And it was like a week into season and I get a text message and it just says like, I'm 40 yards from a bedded buck. And I'm like, what? And, uh, and so it was like an hour and a half later and he says, I'm into 20 and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And I thought he was joking. Like I didn't think he was being serious. And it was like, a, like 30 minutes later and he says, I just need him to stand up. And, uh, and I'm like, what is going on? And then he calls me and he's like, dude, I did it. I stinking, I, I saw a buck. I crawled into 40 yards. I crawled into 20 yards. I crawled into 13 yards. He stood up and I shot him and I'm like you've got to be joking me right now with a recurve. And, and he was like, yeah, with my recurve. And I'm like, that's, that's awesome. And so I'm like, I'll be there in a minute, I guess. And, uh, so I go out there and it was a nice stinking buck. Um, I mean, probably mid one thirties. And, uh, I was like, dude, that's a great buck, man. And you did it. You're really your first hunt, uh, with a recurve and your first hunt still hunting. And, uh, you know, he just has it. He's just that guy that just has it. Cause then, uh, we went on a hog hunt and, uh, again, still hunting with a recurve kills a hog. And then he says, I think I'm going to go to Oklahoma and try some public ground. And I'm like, well, that'd be fun. And, uh, text me again. He's like, Hey, I'm 24 yards from a bedded buck. And I'm like, dude, I hate you. Like, <laughs> he's just one of those guys that I don't know. He's just good at it. You know? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> any white tail from the ground still hunting like that with a, with a stick bow is an accomplishment, but to kill a nice buck like that that's uh that is quite the accomplishment so good on him man and and you know he he's got deer on his wall that i mean he's got a 180 and he's got a 175 and and uh he's like dude those deer like th- they don't mean anything near what this deer means um he's like this deer is is might as well be a 220 inch deer compared to those yeah yeah i mean it's it's the same way when you when you uh start bow hunting you know if you're a rifle hunter you start bow hunting or if you're a compound hunter you start with a stick bow you know every time you 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 bump things back a little bit and put in a little bit more effort 
uh, and have to overcome a few more obstacles. You know, anything, anytime you find success after pushing through that hardship and I mean, it just makes it that much sweeter, right? Oh, absolutely, man. And that's what, um, you know, I said it on the video where I shot my first one. Um, he was probably 115, um, but being in full velvet, being my first deer with a, a, a recurve, um, I said, I'm like, this deer means more than any other deer I have on the wall so far. Um, and it's just, that's why I always encourage people to take that next step and try try a recurve, try a longbow, um, try a self-bow. Um, now the same friend who did all that, he's like, well, now I'm going to, he's like, once I find time, he's a carpenter by trade, but he's like, once I find time, I'm going to start making my own bows. And I'm like, dude, you're progressing quickly. Um, <laughs> and uh, he, he's been tearing through your videos, watching your videos, but he's like, yeah, I'm going to start start making my own bows now and uh, hunting with those. And I'm like, man, you're doing it. But I always try to encourage people. I'm like, there's such there's so much more gratification found when you cut things back and when you make more things more difficult and more intimate. Um, you know, I never understood you know, hunting with that hunting with a recurve. I never understood. I'm like, I would see deer at 25 and I'm like, ah, just don't know. You know, maybe if you were three yards closer, if, you know, it takes so much longer. You learn the animals so much better. You get to spend so much more time with the animals. Uh, because with the compound, you see them at 40, it, they're dead. Uh, well, you know, you see them with a recurve at, at 40, and, and you still got a lot of waiting to do. Um, and so it just makes things so much more intimate and, and mean so much more in the end when you finally get one on the ground. 100% agreed. Especially when you're starving to death and you need food. <laughs> Yeah, that does add a little bit to it. Uh, really, though, you know, I told somebody that. We were sitting there watching it with a with a, a few buddies, and I told somebody that, and I'm like, man, I don't think we can understand what that means to Clay. Um, you know, we get excited when we shoot a deer, but we just take it to the processor, drop it off, and throw it in the freezer. Like, that means, like, that that's literally means life for Clay. Like, that means he's not going to die. And, of course... You wouldn't die, but you know what I mean. Um, but that in that situation, that's literally surviving. Um, that's not just putting meat in the freezer um, because there, there is no option to drive to Walmart and grab a pound of beef. Like, you had to have that to survive. And, and I don't think people really truly understand. They've lost that connection of, of hunting and food, and, and it's just been lost upon us, man. Yeah, I, I think that... It's impossible to understand exactly what I was feeling at that, you know, when I found that deer, um, unless you've been in a situation like that. And, and so very, very, very few people have ever been in a situation like that. Um, I mean, I, I've killed, I don't know, probably over 30 big game animals with a self bow. I mean, I've killed bull elk and, whitetail bucks and big hogs and bears and everything else and I've never experienced what I experienced when I walked up on that deer I mean it was like the way I mean you're you're literally you're starving you're withering away and you know I I by the time I killed that deer I hadn't caught a fish for a week you know but the fishing had quit I mean it dried up and so I'm I had fished, I'd been able to catch enough fish to stock up for, you know, keep myself fed with like, and when I talk about stocked up, I was eating one little tiny fish fillet a day. 
plus some mushrooms and like some fireweeds and berries and stuff. And so I was down to like my last two pieces of fish and I could not buy a fish. I couldn't catch a fish to save my life. And so you've, you're, you're already starving and then you've got your food. What little food you do have is running out real fast. And to be all of a sudden, like you're worried about this, you know, you can see the end coming. Um, and then to have all of that stress just taken away, like, like the weight of the world lifted off your shoulder. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. I've never experienced anything like that and likely never will again. Did you bring the head home? Absolutely. Yeah. I've got the, got the skull. Um, I think I put it on the, I, I rebuilt the, the shelter that I made out there. Me and the boys built like a replica of it. And I did a YouTube video on that. I mounted it to the front like I did when I was out there on the show. You know, I uh, I asked Jordan Jonas if he brought his moose home, and they wouldn't let him fly it home. And he was already, like, at the airport, like, checked in, so there was no, like, going to mail it anymore. And so he said, he, I walked back out and, like, left it yeah, at that. the door of the airport. And uh, he's like, you know it's hanging up on somebody's, like, old barn now, and, like, they have no idea, like, what that moose meant at that time. Like, it to, to them, it's just a, a, a mediocre moose. Um, but they have no idea what that moose meant yeah. to me. Um, and, and same is true. I mean, no one can ever know in that moment what that deer meant to you. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a little spike. You know, he's got eight-inch spikes. Like, But that was the, I mean, that'll, that'll be, um, that'll be probably the most memorable deer. I don't care if I kill a world record buck. That, that'll be the most memorable deer I ever take with a bow or anything i mean not only was it was it food when you needed it but that is the hardest like that's the hardest way anybody can accomplish any hunt to be dropped off in an area with no resources other than a bow no time spent beforehand to scout it and look at maps and i mean that is the most difficult way to kill any animal right there and you did it yeah um I did, but the the thing is, there's just like with any hunt, you know, you need that opportunity. You could go out there and and bust your butt, and if you don't get the opportunity, you don't get the opportunity. Um, and that's where chance comes in. I mean, I, I I had that chance, and without it, I'd be telling a different story. Um, but I mean, I was just lucky that my life is traditional archery. I mean, I and shooting a stick bow for decades. And so when I did get that chance, you know, I was able to make good on it. So. That's awesome, man. Um, Clay, Fred Bear was big on his field notes. Uh, so I like to ask all of my guests, what's one field note that you've taken um, that I can take and put in my back pocket and make myself a better hunter with? Persist. Persist. Just don't give up. You know, um, so many times on a hunt, especially... I don't care what kind of hunt it. I mean, if you're, if you're hunting big game, um, there's so many times and every hunter that's been out there has experienced it. When you're out there, you're sitting and you're like, what am I doing here? Like, this is just, the odds are so far against me, you know? And then you start thinking about, you know, if you're, you're sitting out in a tree stand, it's 20 degrees and wind's blowing and you're freezing, your toes are about to freeze off. And you're like, man, I, you know, 
it's just not going to happen. And then you start, you start talking yourself out of sitting and then you go home. But if you're not out there, it ain't never going to happen. And so just persist. I mean, I could have talked myself. I, I, it would have been so easy to hit that button to go home when I was out there. But for me, that just was never an option. There was not any way that I was ever going to leave there without them, without me either being the last one or them coming to get me because I would on the verge of death. And so that would be my field note is persist. There you go. Uh, before we go, I do got to give a quick thank you to our friends over at minus 33 Merino wool. Um, I'm a huge fan of Merino. I happen to wear it every single day. Um, whether it be a t-shirt or socks or underwear, I pretty much always have Merino on. I know Clay's a big fan of Merino. Um, it serves its purpose and it serves it well. Um, and my friends over at Minus 33, they do it well. So if you're in the market for some new Merino, go check out Minus 33 Merino Wool. Uh, Clay, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on an awesome win, man. And uh, I hope that uh, the rest of the season treats you well. Well, I appreciate it, and you as well. Do you got any more hunts coming up? That's pretty pretty late up there, ain't it? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm pretty much on the road now. Um, you know, as far as just got done with ATA and Sheep Week, and and now we got SCI, and and uh, then in February we got Portland and Sacramento, and um, so I'm pretty much on the road traveling now for shows. Um, I am gonna go after some uh, mm-hmm. some Axis deer in Texas um here in the early part of the summer that i'm really excited about well, that ought to be fun i've never hunted axis but uh you going to south south texas yeah southernmost part of texas um and i'm i'm really excited about it um you know i hear not only their phenomenal table fare uh but i hear they're really fun to hunt um because they they it's kind of like chasing elk they have a roar um that they do and so um mm-hmm. you can call to them and they'll call back and uh so i'm really excited about it well, good. I hope you have a good time. I've never hunted Axis, but I have eaten them, and they are they are phenomenal. Really good eating. Yeah, I had some uh, I had some summer sausage. Um, we were on a hunt, and uh, we were cooking up. We had killed a bunch of javelinas and some rattlesnake, and oh, uh, I think a I think one of the guys shot a whitetail. But we were cleaning up animals and eating them, and some guy said, "Well, hey, I've got some Axis sausage from last week. You guys want to try that?" And we're like, "Well, uh, yeah, sure." And uh, it was really good. So, I'm excited to get some of it. Good, good deal. Well, guys, thank you for listening. Have a good week. And if you have not checked out Clay Hayes, go find him on YouTube, Instagram. Um, Clay, where can they find you at? Oh, they can find me on uh, Clay Hayes Hunter uh, on Instagram, Facebook. If they just Google me or whatever, uh, they can find my. Uh, youtube just get on google and type in clay hayes and it'll pop up and then my website is uh twistedstave.com got some different things on there that might be interested in a lot of bow building stuff but that's that's it if you have ever wanted information on executing a shot tuning a recurve how to set up a clicker how to find your draw length how to anything traditional uh, Clay Hayes would be your man, and then especially if you've ever considered building your own bows. Uh, so go check out uh, his social media and his YouTube and his website. But guys, thanks for listening. You guys have a great week.